You're listening to the Ikra Book Festival 2020, brought to you by The Ark, Radio Ramadan 365, Al Khair, Human Relief Foundation, and Allison Street Cleaners. Allison Street Cleaners, is your laundry piling up? Are you too tired or busy to get it done? Come to Allison Street Cleaners, a fast and friendly laundrette. Services include dry cleaning, ironing, shirt service, and you can now also hire the rug doctor, making sure all your cleaning needs are fulfilled. Presenting you with an exclusive Ramadan special to Radio Ramadan listeners. £2 off every £10 spent until the 15th of June. Don't miss out. Visit us at 110 Allison Street, Glasgow, g 428 N or call 0141-423-3958 Alison Street Cleaners Clean water isn't a luxury It's the moral right of everyone Yet 785 million people live without it And the consequences are dramatic With diseases from dirty water Killing more people each year Than all forms of violence Including war It's why Human Relief Foundation bring clean water into the heart of communities. But they need your support to do more. Visit hrf.org.uk We believe that every child deserves a good education. This is the best way to ensure that they can achieve their full potential and escape a life of poverty for themselves and their families. All that these children want is a chance to learn and fulfill their dreams. With your donations, Al Khair Foundation helps thousands of children gain a quality education. Please support us so that we can continue to help some of the poorest children across the world. To learn more, please visit our Glasgow branch at 441A Victoria Road, Glasgow, G428RW or call on 0141-423-5747 or visit our website at alkhair.org. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my name, as Sajid has already said, is Maria Sharif, and I'll be hosting the next four sessions for you. Um, the very first um, talk that I'll be um, introducing is um, we will have Diana Dark, who will be discussing her book, Stealing from the Saracens, How Islamic Architecture Shaped Europe. And the interviewer for this session is... Uh, Dr. Basit Amjad, who I think we should have with us now. I'm here. Yeah. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, uh, Dr. Basit is um, a pediatric surgeon at the Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow. Um, he's also a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, as well as the one in Edinburgh. He has interests in both academic and clinical medicine. He's published in these fields and he's actively involved with the teaching of medical humanities at the University of Glasgow. His interests include reading, particularly books on history, bookbinding, classical music and hillwalking. Um, I am intrigued to find out a bit more about your book, bookbinding. Welcome, Dr. Bassett. Thank you. Thank you so much. For um, have we got Do- uh, Diana with us now? Yes, I'm, I'm here. Hi, Diana. Um, are you, um, are we in a position to um, have your video on as well? Uh, it says you've stopped it. Um, so oh. you have to start it again, I think. 
I think you should receive an invitation from our tech guys. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Welcome, Diana. Um, I'm going to now hand it over to Diana um, and Bassett. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Um, a very warm welcome to all of you who are joining us for this session. It is my uh, great privilege and um, pleasure to um, introduce Diana Dark. Diana, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you fine. Yes, yes. Yeah. Can no, you see the screen as well? Oh, there we go. So there we are. So um, it's my great privilege and pleasure to introduce Diana Dark. Uh, Diana started off studying uh, philosophy and German uh, at Oxford. Uh, and that would have been a natural fit. I believe your, your mom is German and your dad is a professor of German as well. But to our immense benefit, you, you switched to Arabic. Uh, you have lived and worked in, in the Middle East and Turkey for more than 30 years. And uh, Dana also holds a master's degree in Islamic architecture. So Dana is an author, a, a broadcaster, a scholar of Arabic. Uh, a well-known travel writer, and I believe a great advocate of Middle Eastern culture, particularly her beloved Syria, where she has a house in the, in the old city of Damascus. Uh, Dana has written more than 17 books, uh, predominantly on the Middle East and Turkey. Uh, to mention a few of the books, uh, my, my House in Damascus, An Inside View of the Syrian Revolution, The Merchant of Syria, A History of Survival, and The Last Sanctuary in Aleppo. And of course, the, the book we are here to, to, to talk about today, Stealing from the Saracens, uh, How Islamic Architecture Shaped Europe. Dana, can I kindly request you first to perhaps read uh, a few passages from your book, and then we can have a, have a chat and a discussion. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Basit. That's uh, a, a very, um, very great introduction and I didn't realize your own medical background actually because you told me your wife was an architect but you didn't say anything about yourself so <laughs> amazing and and Maria's woodland interests too that's another thing which I, I hope to mention because Islamic architecture is very tied into nature actually it's, it's something I noticed in my researches so it's a it's a fascinating thing uh, but anyway yes I'm, I'm going to I've never been asked to do this before to read a little bit from 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 my book I normally show lots of pictures but so this is a nice change actually just to read a section and um, the book takes a huge overview it's a massive big picture like like the previous speaker actually talking about his jigsaw this is like a, a giant circular jigsaw and I was putting together all, all the pieces um, and it really uh, nobody's actually attempted anything quite so ambitious as this before. In fact, um, the TLS review that came out yesterday said, calls it extraordinarily ambitious. <laughs> I'm glad they, they recognized that because it is, it is quite something that I'm trying, but I'm trying to tie all the threads together um, so, that, so that all this becomes accessible, if you like, to the general reader who, 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 who hasn't you know, had, an, had, an, had an opportunity to think about uh, any of this stuff before. So the, the purpose of the book really is, is, to, is to show how multicultural everything is, how, multi, how, how connected we all are, really. That's what it's about. It, it shows how we can't just claim this or that for ourselves and say, we did this, we did that. The point is we, we always built on what came before. Um, and so um, one of the sections, we share so many things for a start. So when you're talking about um, Islam and Christianity, we share so much 
symbolism, for example, light symbolism. But then, of course, there are other things that are different. So um, the section I'm going to read now is, is, from, is from my book uh, where I talk about the Cordoba Mesquita, which is the, a critical building. And I actually devote nearly 25 pages in the book to talking about this because it's so, so important as a, as a building. And one of the things that struck me in the research is, is one, this is one of the fundamental differences between uh, Muslim and Christian architecture is about the approach to space, how to use the space. So I'm just going to read this a uh, couple of paragraphs now, not, not very long, just, just this one short section. The big difference in the Muslim and Christian approaches to space comes in their view of hierarchy. In a mosque, the only element of hierarchy is the maksura, the special enclosure for the caliph, found for the first time in the Damascus Umayyad Mosque and imitated in Cordoba, where there is even a special passage for the caliph leading direct from the adjacent palace. Apart from that, there is no hierarchy, no special seating for important people as exists in a church. There is only the relationship directly between God and the worshiper, conveyed and highlighted by the sense of infinity and repetition in all directions. All spaces are equal, and it does not matter whereabouts you are in the building. When inside the Cordoba Mesquita, this is how you actually feel as a visitor, unsure when you have reached the end or are back at the beginning. It is indeed a web. Western architects usually use a very different approach, namely the Vitruvian method of taking each room of a building one at a time and making all measurements follow a perfect symmetry from the center of that room only. Then they move to the next room and start all over again. The whole is therefore created by sticking together a series of individual units, not by visualizing the whole as one unit from the outset. This is a fundamental difference which you can sense on entering an Islamic building. When Gothic architects took on pointed arches interlocking arches and ribbed vaults from their Islamic predecessors, they used them very differently to divide the space into hierarchies. You are never in any doubt in a church or cathedral where the important bits are. And once you start to look for it, it is easy to see how the architecture reinforces this. So that's just you know one of the reflections, if you like, um, that, um, I made during my 25 pages of uh, focusing on the Cordoba Mesquite, just to give you a flavor of some of the uh, some of the thoughts that came to me during the research. It's interesting you should pick that passage. Um, Pakistanis particularly, but people from Southeast Asia are, uh, think of Allama Iqbal, uh, who's the national poet of Pakistan as a reverential figure. And, and there's a national holiday in Pakistan on his birthday. And Iqbal wrote a, a fascinating poem about, about the mosque in Cordoba. And I believe he was the only man in the modern era who was given permission in the 1920s or 30s to, to pray within the precinct of the mosque in Cordoba. So that's that's interesting passage to pick. Uh, can I first please ask you to uh, tell us something about the title of the book, and which is which I'm sure a lot of people find, find intriguing. And uh, I believe it caused quite a stir. And, and in fact, the, the, the first printing of the book sold almost immediately. 
Yes, I mean the choice the choice of the title is 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 important to explain. It's very deliberate, very deliberate, and it's meant to be funny. Actually, people don't seem to realise that they they take it they take it literally, they take it seriously, but it's a deliberate irony, a double irony, um, based on uh, well the word Saracens itself for a start. The reason I'm using the word Saracens is because um, Christopher Wren. Back in the uh, back in the 17th century, developed this theory that what we call the Gothic style should rightly be called the Saracen style. And so, one of the things I'm doing in the book is exploring Gothic architecture and, and seeing what what can be traced back to Islamic elements. So, so that's the reason we wanted the word Saracens, which is obviously a very old-fashioned word. Nobody uses that word anymore, but it, it, it's from the language of the Crusades, if you like. But, but it's a striking word, you know, people associate it with all sorts of things. And the, the, the Arabic derivation of the word from Saraka, so it's Sarakin, uh, Saraka is to steal, Sarakin are thieves. So it's a deliberate play on, on words that we are stealing things, i.e. borrowing architectural ideas, from people we are calling thieves. So, so it's, it's, it's a deliberate uh, play on words, you know, meant to be striking, um, but it's interesting how many people just completely misunderstood it. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, the book is not just a, just, a, just a wonderful joy to read, but also a, a joy to behold. Uh, it's, it's so beautifully, so handsomely produced. Can you tell us a bit about the dust jacket piece to start off and, and also a bit about how this book was produced? It's absolutely yeah. yeah, I'm so pleased actually with Hearst. They did, they did a beautiful job on it. I, I, I never dreamt they would use so many um, color images throughout. I mean, it, when, I, when I was writing the manuscript, I, I, I inserted, you know, put, put a photograph of this here and this there, you know, some of the photographs of my own but um, most of them are actually sourced from, from Wikipedia, so they're completely free. Um, so I gave them all the links, never imagining that they would um, be able to use most of them. But I think um, as they read the manuscript, they, they saw that this is the sort of subject that you have to illustrate. You have to have pictures of the buildings to explain what you're talking about. So, so they, did, uh, they did a beautiful job. And, and the, the actual, um, the reason for choosing this, um, this, this cover is, um, well, you know, as with most book covers, you, you, you know, they get sent off to a designer and they come back with about three to choose from. But this one was the immediate choice, as far as I was concerned. I said, it has to be that one, because th that, this is the interior of the dome of, uh, of St. Paul's Cathedral, built by Christopher Wren. And so, in, in St. Paul's Cathedral, Christopher Wren says, quite openly, he writes it in his memoirs, he said, I used the Saracen vaulting because it is the best. And he explains about all the other different kinds of vaulting and, and says, but I, this is the one I chose because it is the best. So it's not what you expect. You don't expect to find the interior of St. Paul's Cathedral on a book called Stealing from the Saracens. <laughs> Um, and also the circularness of it, the fact that in the middle, you've got, you've got the, um, the circle there. So that is the oculus, which lets in the light. So again, the light symbolism is very significant in both Islam and Christianity. And um, it also reinforces this whole idea of the circle. 
the, the, the lack of hierarchy, the very Islamic lack of hierarchy. So there's a lot of thought has gone into this cover. Um, and so it does require a bit of it, it explaining. So thank you for giving me the chance to explain it. Would you tell us why the, the, the fire uh, at, at Notre Dame in, in Paris, um, how it was a catalyst that prompted you to, to, to write this book? Would you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so when Notre Dame caught fire um, in April of 2019, and the whole world was transfixed by the sight of this Gothic cathedral in the center of Paris going up in flames, and there was massive world coverage of it. Um, and the coverage was all about, oh, the French national identity, you know, uh, the, the great, great symbol of France going up in flames. Um, and it, and it, I just sort of instinctively thought, wait a minute, you know, you can't claim that as your national identity. Don't you realize that most of the elements of this Gothic cathedral, in fact, originated way to the east, not in Europe at all. So, so I just um, randomly, you know, instinctively really, just put out a, a tweet showing a picture of the church, the fifth century church in Idlib province in Syria, currently in the middle of a war held by the rebels. And um, it's called Kalblauze, and uh, said, this is the ancestor of Notre Dame. And it's, it's standing in, in Syria today. And I was astonished at the, um, the reaction, basically. Clearly, nobody knew this, and, and you know, people just assumed it was all European. We're, we're back to this idea of claiming everything for yourself, to say, right, we invented this, you know, and not, not acknowledging the backstory, basically. So, um, so that's why, you know, I, I then wrote a blog piece about it, which was picked up almost immediately, reblogged elsewhere, and before I knew it, um, the whole thing had been translated into languages all around the world. <laughs> then, as chance had it, I, I, we did a family holiday to, to, to Cordoba. And so then I, I saw what, what had happened in Cordoba and the Mesquita there and was equally horrified at the lack of acknowledgement of the backstory. And so I was ranting about all of this to my publisher and he said, right, okay, well, why don't you write a book about it then? <laughs> So that's how it came to be. I hadn't ever thought to write a book about this subject. It was all triggered by the fire. Literally, the spark that lit the fire is what sparked me into action on this book. It's interesting, isn't it? This, this idea of shared values and ideas is not just um, architecture. It, it, it goes across to so many different things. You, yeah. you talk a bit about Arabic numerals in, in, in your book as well. And yeah. how a lot of people in the West do not realize that 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 the that the buttons on their mobile phone or any other device with all the numbers and it is actually about a big origin. Yeah, no, that's right. There are so many things like that. But in, in and and maths, maths and physics is obviously at the core. The scientific uh, knowledge that came out of the Arabic, out out of the Islamic world. Um, so so geometry, for instance, um, the understanding that Muslim masons had of geometry was way, way superior to anything that existed in Europe. So, so when, when the Umayyads, uh, you know, the, the, obviously the Umayyads were the first um, Islamic dynasty with their capital in Damascus, but when the Abbasids uh, put an end to that and slaughtered, slaughtered them all, one, one Umayyad prince, Abdurrahman, escaped and made his way across North Africa and founded, if you like, Syria in Spain. He took, he, he recreated his homeland in, in Spain. And, and 
you know, this is, uh, this is what I immediately recognize in, in, in Cordoba. I can see Syria, you know, I can see it everywhere. Um, but, but the Spanish people can't, can't see it because it's not acknowledged. Interesting. I mean, I mean, a lot of ideas which have, have been taken uh, because people recognize that they, they are good ideas and they've been incorporated into whatever they want to do. But some ideas are picked up without realizing the significance behind them. Uh, uh, it, it reminds me of, of a bit in your book where you talk about the first printed map of Jerusalem mm. and how it was published in Germany in the, the 15th century. And, and uh, it showed the Dome of the Rock uh, sporting a kind of an onion dome. But, but equally fascinating was the fact that it was mislabeled as the, the Temple of Solomon. T tell us a bit about that. I found that very interesting. Yes. Well, again, you know, again and again, actually, in the book, there's really stuff that's quite funny when you think about it. It's just ignorance, basically. I mean, it, it, back, back in medieval times, people didn't know very much about history and they didn't understand, you know, they didn't have a, the advantages that we have now of just being able to go and look everything up immediately. So, so yes, this map. I mean, I, I discovered that it was it was drawn by um, a, a German, well, a Dutch pilgrim actually, who was accompanying an important uh, German bishop on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And when people in those days, we're talking, um, this was um, 1486 is when the map came out. So when people did a pilgrimage in those days. It was a long and arduous journey, and they spent a long time there. So, so this this Dutch artist, he had six months to produce this map. So they were there a long time. They didn't just pop in and out. <laughs> so he drew this absolutely beautiful map, um, and then it was brought back, and the bishop wrote up his his pilgrimage, and the map was used in the pilgrimage, and it was it became the first printed map, pictorial printed map of Jerusalem. So for everybody else um, who'd never been to Jerusalem, this became their vision of Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, well, basically because the Crusaders, the Templars, when they arrived in Jerusalem, mistook the Dome of the Rock for the Temple of Solomon and labeled it as such on the map and turned it into a Christian shrine, never, never understanding that it was actually um, a Muslim shrine. <laughs> and so consequently, many churches across Europe were modeled on a Muslim shrine out of pure ignorance. So uh, <laughs> there, there are several stories similar to that, actually, where you've got mistaken identities, people getting confused with other people. Um, and it leads to actually the birth of Gothic architecture, would you believe? So it's, it's funny how in history, a series of random accidents that nobody could have engineered lead to unexpected developments. Amazing. Uh, you, know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, you know, domes, uh, you know, the architecture, the soaring architecture of domes as such, you know, and, um, and the fact that um, when, when the Ottomans arrived in, in Istanbul, the, for them, the, uh, they, they looked at the Hagia Sophia and everything. The, the idea of creating a dome came from that, inspiration came from that as well. But, they, the, the, the Ottomans and the Byzantines also borrowed from civilization that came before them. So, so what's the fascination of the domes? Why are all civilizations so fascinated with the dome? Well, again, here we're talking about shared symbolisms. The dome comes to represent the vault of heaven. In, 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 most, um, in most religions, you know, it represent, representing the sky. And of course, you know, 
in early religions, the sky is the place that people didn't understand. So they assumed that that's where, you know, superior being they didn't understand must in some way be related to the sun and the moon and the stars and everything that was going up, uh, going on in the sky that they simply couldn't understand. So uh, it goes back very, very early to the earliest um, civilizations. Um, the, the, the Persians actually um, created domes um, and, and the idea is thought to have come from um, early, early tents as well that covered, uh, covered um, the ruler and the shapes um, from that. And, and the, you know, people talk about the Hagia Sophia as if that was the first major dome. But again, people don't look at the backstory. Nobody just made that dome out of, you know, boom, just like that created out of nowhere. It had a massive backstory. There was a whole field of experimentation in early, earlier domes than that in, in Syria. Um, the, the so-called dead cities, as, as they are, which, which are, you know, the early Byzantine churches. So we're talking fourth, fifth and sixth century. And the, the most important of these was the St. Simeon's Basilica, which had a dome and which predated the Hagia Sophia by 50 years. And in its day, it was the most important pilgrimage site in the whole of Christendom. So Europeans, people from Britain would walk to Northern Syria. It's east of Aleppo, by the way, um, in today's geography. Um, they would walk all the way to St. Simeon's um, it was the equivalent of the, of the you know, Santiago de Compostela of, of its day, basically. It was the, pil the pilgrimage site, the early Christian pilgrimage site. And there are still villages now in France named after St. Simeon. Um, there are you know, lots of relics of him scattered in churches all over France. Um, you can go looking for these things. It's a, again, it's a sort of fascinating detective story to track them all down. So, so the dome didn't just spring out like that. It has a huge backstory. I mean, Hagia Sophia has got a massive backstory. And then it inspired future things, of course, and people built on it and developed the double dome, you know, the, which was an Islamic technique, which then the Ottomans developed and, and, and Christopher Wren used it in, uh, in, uh, in, in St. Paul's. And indeed, you know, in America, the... the the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C., the great symbol of America, is using a double dome, you know, the Islamic technique. <laughs> Diana, we have a question from our chat box. Um, one of the audience members are asking about, you're talking about the significance of the dome historically, but what's your thoughts on the sort of more current practice amongst um, Muslims in having a sort of green plastic dome? That's how it's described it. It almost sort of has a symbolism of what the dome represented being lost through this process of uh, just replication. Well, sadly, um, the, you know, the use of horrible modern, um, you know, materials does detract, I, I think, from, uh, from, from a lot of... Uh, you know, modern architecture, you can't get away from it. I mean, the, the, the beauty of the old early stone, the early mosaics, um, you know, things like stained glass window. I mean, you know, the glass, the beautiful old glass in, in, in um, uh, the earliest Gothic cathedrals all came from Syria. The raw materials came from Syria because it has this beautiful organic quality to it. The plant ash that they used in, in, uh, in the manufacture of it was special. 
Europe has nothing like it. And it gives this sort of magical quality to the light, um, which, which creates a kind of spiritual atmosphere almost, you know, this sort of these plays on light. You go into a, you know, a modern building with plastic everywhere, plastic windows, and, you know, all of that is kind of lost in, in, in my view. It's difficult um, to get that same feeling that, that a very ancient building gives you, you know, that sense of the sacred as soon as you enter it which you, you can't really replicate, you know, you, yeah, and, and you have to be very careful too in the way you restore these old buildings, because if, if you over restore, you can destroy that old, that sense of oldness that the building has, you know, you can't, you can't sort of restore it and, and sort of try to make it new, if you like, you have to respect the old and um, only intervene to the extent that it's necessary for the structure, but, but leave everything else well alone. Diana, can I can I ask talking about plastic? I mean, the, the the great challenge of the modern era, if not the pandemic, is has been climate change and and how to make buildings and and structures environmentally friendly, right? The for for a lot of us, for a lot of Muslims, the the greatest Muslim architect would have been uh, Memar Sinan. Yeah, yes. And and, and uh, there's a lot of reference to him in your book, but I, I was fascinated by a section in which you describe how he created environmentally friendly features in mosques almost so many hundreds of years ago. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, uh, it, it is unbelievable, isn't it? That, that Sinan, you know, back, back then in the 16th century was designing mosques with environmentally friendly practices, even then, that's just how his mind worked, you know? So, so yes, so with, with that huge space, um, it had to be lit, of course, in those days before electricity and, and the lighting was candles. So um, with all those candles, he thought, even before building the, the, the dome, how to channel the soot from the candles uh, that, that rose up, obviously, up towards the dome. He, he channeled it into special filters where it would um, pass through water and make ink. And this ink was then used um, on manuscripts and so not only was that useful, but also because it was an organic product, it, it served to preserve the manuscripts. Um, it acted as a sort of, um, you know, sort of preservation um, material substance for, for the manuscripts. So, you know, all of that, he, he thought it all through so that there was, it was early recycling, you know, par excellence. Absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. You know, the, the, the great joy of any great work of art is that it touches you on a personal level, as your book did for me. What do you want to, what do you want to achieve with this book? What do, you want to, what do you want to say to people when you reach out to people with this book? Well, my, my whole purpose with this book is, is to try to open people's eyes to when you look at a building, don't just see it as, oh, you know, that is X, you know. So, so, so for instance, a Gothic cathedral. Now, um, when I look at a Gothic cathedral or on my local church here, here where I live, I now um, have a really enhanced understanding and appreciation of it. Now that I understand the backstory of where the arches, the pointed arches, the trefoil arches, the blind arches, the interlocking arches, all of that came from the Islamic world. And these are un unquestionably inventions of early Islamic architecture. And you can see it all in the Mayad architecture and trace it through. And I've been lucky enough in my life to be able to 
spend long periods of time, you know, living uh, and working in the Middle East in, in countries like Syria, Jordan, what is today Israel and Palestine. All of these countries are so rich in early Islamic architecture. And so I've been able to see it, uh, you know, and, and the dead cities in, in northern Syria and indeed parts of southeastern Turkey. I've traveled there extensively, so I know these buildings well and I can see very clearly um, in a way that sadly today people simply can't travel easily to those parts of the world. So it's, it's, it's a way of bringing it to a wider audience to help them understand the significance of these early buildings and make them realize how, um, how nothing European, if you like, <laughs> any of these, especially religious architecture, um, you know, how inter interwoven it all is. In fact, that's just reminded me, I must just read this out actually, because the, the, the endorsement of my book that I'm most proud of is from Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, I mean, he, he got it, he understood it completely. And he, he wrote, as exhilarating as it is learned, this splendidly illustrated book shows how our cultures, including our religious cultures, interact and interweave in ways that challenge all kinds of assumptions we might make about our history. By studying our past, Dark poses essential questions about the possibility of a shared and humane civilization in the future. Absolutely. And I can't improve on that, that he completely understood what I'm trying to do with this book. Absolute joy, absolute joy. Uh, Maria, is there any questions from our we did have another one that was touching upon um, the, well, not quite the significance of um, the ISVIA, but in relation to the recent controversy around um, reinstating the ISVIA as uh, a mosque and a place of worship. What's your thoughts on the sort of the impact that that's having or has? Well, again, you know, this is the trouble that buildings become part of culture wars, and that's what I'm trying to fight against, really, with the book, because what you have to recognize with these buildings um, is that um, they are political. You know, they are political. They, they reflect the politics of the time in which they were built. And, you know, the Hagia Sophia was a political building when it was built. Uh, you know, Justinian wanted, wanted to prove, to show his power. It's all about projecting power, just as, you know, um, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral was about projecting the new power of the Protestant church, you know, having broken away from the Catholics. So these buildings, there's a purpose, you know, and you have to be very rich and powerful to be able to build them in the first place. So um, as to what's happened now with, with Hagia Sophia, to my view, you've got to take, uh, you've got to take um, a political look at it and say, okay, so the fact that President Erdogan has decided to, uh, uh, to make it back into um, a mosque, uh, you know, that is a reflection of the politics of Turkey today. When, when, when it was made into a museum, that was Ataturk, so that was a reflection of the politics of Ataturk's day. And, and these buildings will always reflect the politics of their day. So the time will come no doubt, you know, when a different leader comes to Turkey and may decide to do something different with it. You know, we, we, we don't know, but they are they are reflections and it, it just shows the, the power. And of course, President Erdogan understands that um, by doing this, it 
it plays to his base, you know, in today's language, like, like Trump playing to his base, you know, it plays to President Erdogan's base to do something like that. In Turkey, it's been a tremendously popular move. And, you know, it's only in, in the Western world, if you like, that it's been criticized because again, we're, we're kind of using it in these culture wars, which frankly are, are, are pointless and stupid. You know, we need to um, see, see a bigger picture than that. Thank you very much, Diana. Um, I'd, I'd like to thank both Bassett and Diana for a really interesting conversation. Um, I did want to do architecture a long, long, long time ago. Um, and I'm actually intrigued to read the book and, and share it with, with others. Um, um, thank you very much, Diana. Um, now, I've put on the chat box already um, where we can get links Diana, to purchasing the book. If people are wanting to find out a little bit more about your background, um, are we okay to share your website address? Sure, sure, yes, fine, fine. Yeah. Yes, they can see the stuff I've written about the Ayasofia actually there. <laughs> I think my most recent blog post was about the Ayasofia actually. Was it? Okay. Is there any parting comments before we finish, um, Diana, that you'd like to have our audience no, I think I think we've covered it well. Actually, I'm 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 glad you know that I've had a chance to explain. Um, you know, basically, the, the book is a is a is a is a plea for multiculturalism, and and buildings like Gothic cathedrals are in effect multicultural. You know, and and have many many aspects from different cultures uh, interwoven in them, including Islamic ones, and and that's really what I'm saying. Thank you very much, Diana and Bassett, for you your much. thoughts on um, on Diana's book. Um, we're going to now um, move on to our break um, for a couple of minutes, and then we will be introducing the next session, which is um, discussing the book by Medina Tenor Whiteman. And I'll say a little bit more about that after a word from our sponsors. Thank you again to both our author Diana and Bassett. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for hosting.